Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everything I've said is true, it's real. Dinosaur fossils? Don't like to put those here to test our faith. That damn lie, I, I saw them on my own eye! Did I accuse just drop sharply while I was away? We did it illusions, man. None of it is true. I'm not insane! This is mass madness, you maniac! In God's name, you people are the real thing! We are the illusion! How's it going, everybody? We are back on the deep share with Dwayne Hayes again. Part we are six. going, yeah, part six of More Brandon. Than halfway Hayes. through now. This is so intense, man. We're getting into the real thick of it now, and this is what we've been kind of uh, talking up for mm-hmm. quite a little while now. This angle. Um, why don't you uh, give us a little rundown of what, what we're going to be discussing tonight? Yeah, well, the importance of uh, law in social control, it was something that, you know, I never really paid a lot of attention to, but it's pretty obvious that, you know, laws really help control society, you know, by putting rules and boundaries out there. And and it wasn't until I started looking into this that I really started to gain a respect for uh, social control through the use of law. And so we've been talking about the rise of the expert through all of this, through the story and the life of Louis Brandeis, because he's very prominent in it. And we're seeing science being uh, infused into law with uh, a new philosophy. And so this, this new law that's formed at this same time as everything else is really, you know, the preeminent characteristic of modern day law. The sociological jurisprudence is what we're going to talk about. We talked about this, I think, a little bit in, the, in part two, the scientific management. Mm-hmm. But we are we're sort of chasing the origins of the scientific expert and that influence in America in the West, and so we're starting to uncover some deep concepts. You know, I'm willing to say now that the entire Association of American Universities was created with a specific intent to uh, develop the scientific expert as a governing figure in Western society. So. All right. um, Hopefully everybody's been keeping up. There's there's a ton to learn there already about Brandeis oh, yeah. and this movement, this progressive movement, you know, that's associated going back even, you know, now that we see it's it goes back 300 years or so, this progressive era. So it's not just an American thing. It's not just a Fabian British thing. It's mm-hmm. It goes deeper and and I'm not going to reveal exactly where this all ends up yet, because this is really the conclusion of the whole series. Is so this this tonight and and next week the the two stories on law and Brandeis's involvement in it are really the culmination of uh, Brandeis's domestic influence, and then we're going to get into the international aspect and how they've created 
a, an entire world led by the scientific expert, as witnessed by all of us, you know, during COVID, that and no matter where you were in the world, our elected officials uh, were subservient to the the scientific technical expert. And so yep. this is really what inspired me to go look was, was how did, we, how do we consider that we live in a democracy when the people that we vote for don't actually control anything when the shit hits the fan? So uh, yeah, this 10 part series really is a culmination of that. So if you go onto our website, you'll see that this latest one is there available. We released it yesterday. The and so, of law. yeah. And so I included a map here of America in behind there is this is in the year 1900 or somewhere right in that era. And it's showing the population uh, evolution and railway construction going West. So this is really all about progress. And so it's in this similar time period that America is really being constructed. You know, they're they're creating the Midwest. And, and when we look at the Brandeises, this is exactly where they end up. There's multiple Brandeis uh, factions uh, that end up in the Midwest. We've already shown that Brandeis shows up here, you know, under the direction of something larger we know that the rothschilds are showing up there riding shotgun in the horse and carriage with brandeis's father and they had the intent of opening up the midwest this was the whole reason why they'd come out here and so then you know further investigation into the brandeis name we see that there's tons of brandeises coming out of that same area in prague the brandeis on the elbe and you know there's another faction of the brandeis that end up in omaha they create a department store, the Brandeis department store, and this becomes uh, Nebraska's department store for 50 years. And it's still recognized today. It's a historical landmark, this place. So he's involved in material uh, things. So when we think of a department store, you know, and, and uh, our addictions to materialism, I'm not saying that this is kind of where it starts. I'm just sort of speculating here. That's as far as I know, really into that faction of the Brandeis. I've done a, an initial search to see if there's uh, an obvious relation or, a, you know, some sort of provenance that shows that they're related. I haven't been able to find that, but it's pretty obvious. They're both Brandeises. Uh, this Omaha faction comes 10 years after uh, Louis' family and his dad, Adolf. But you can definitely see there's a premeditated movement to sort of go into the, the Midwest at the time where it's being expanded upon. So it kind of reminds me of the scramble for Africa. Oh yeah. Yeah. Right. And it's it kind of have like all that. of this land that's and all of this natural resources available. And, you know, the native Indian is out there and they're being, you know, erased and, and who comes in their place, but all of these white people that uh, create our world now. And so, you know, that's mm. kind of the sense I get just from a initial look is it, re it really reminds me of the scramble for Africa. Interesting. So Brandeis sociological jurisprudence in the Harvard law school. This is really where it all starts. Uh, well, this is where it, it really gains prominence. It starts in Nebraska and we'll get into that. 
in the Midwest. And so this is a pattern that I want everybody to recognize that there a lot of this is happening in the Midwest. And a lot of these guys end up at University of Milwaukee, Madison, and Nebraska University, and Kansas. And it's because this area is largely progressive, or at least more progressive than the Eastern uh, Seaboard. So they're able to uh, infuse more progressive ideas out in the Midwest. And that's really what I see the reason why they go out there. So at the close of the 19th century, experts in written law, what they call jurists, were of three general schools of thought up until this point, philosophical, historical, and analytical. And all law would have found, uh, been found you know, part of one of those three competing schools. And so according to Nathan Roscoe Pound, the dean of Harvard Law School, the failure of these three schools was twofold. For Pound, the previous forms of jurisprudence were either too reliant on the past or treading too haphazardly or experimentally into the future. A trial and error and ad hoc approach is a is sort of like a predictive criminology. They're trying to stop crime before it happens. So we think of minority report, these things were happening before the, the turn of the 20th century. They were trying to, they'd all come to a, a realization that the only way to truly uh, eliminate crime forever would be to, to predict it. So that was a pretty profound realization. And we're going to get more into that in the second part of this look into law. That's more of the philosophical. So we're just going to sort of unpack the scientific aspect to it. So it's retrospective and prospective accidental models. These are the words that they're, he's using in, in the book that I'm showing in the background, the uh, scope of juris, uh, sociological jurisprudence. So this is really the first book. He, he does a speech in Chicago, I believe. And this is really where he introduces the idea of sociological jurisprudence. But there's a lot of background there that we're going to go through to, to that point. So according to Pound, the path to the most efficient form of law would not be formally realized by following the historical, analytical, or philosophical schools of thought, but by forming a necessary synthesis of the three into a type of legal progressivism, wholly based around the principles of sociology, the scientific study of human beings. Okay, so we get into the mm. founders of sociology here, and they start to uh, show the same, they're exhibiting the same habits and same patterns uh, as the founders of psychiatry in the West and the founders of Western education. So we're seeing that, you know, you know, many, many ways, Western culture and, and, and American culture comes from Prussia. Right. And this is the very interesting point we've been okay, getting so, to for a while. Yeah. So he, he uses the term legal progressivism. So it's a living law that they're creating to work with a living, changing society. And so obviously that is uh, opposite of what the U.S. Constitution is. The U.S. Constitution is supposed to maintain and stay the same, you know, especially when it comes to our freedom to speak and think and congregate, you know, these things should never change. But this is really where that began. The experimentation of the U.S. Constitution begins with these guys. So here is Roscoe Pound stating in, in this book, in the background, the scope and purpose of sociological jurisprudence that a wholly new creed is framing to bring these formerly divergent schools into something like accord. We should expect a new school to arise from this breakdown of the older schools 
and there are many signs that such an event has taken place. Jurists are coming together upon a new ground from different starting points, the rising and still formative school to which we may look chiefly henceforth for advance in juristic thought may be styled the sociological school. So um, that book is easily found on internet or the archives.org site. And so I invite everybody to go look at that. That's a very important document in the creation of our social contract. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So Holmes and later, Holmes is Oliver Wendell Holmes. I think that we've covered him a little bit, but he's a U.S. Supreme Court justice. He's the only one of these people that is a U.S. Supreme Court justice at this time, and they all gravitate towards him. He's a, a honored guest at the House of Truth, and he really sort of gives these guys the the ability to become popular and well known. And and I'm not sure how much say he had in in getting Louis Brandeis as a U.S. Supreme Court justice and Felix Frankfurter as, as a U.S. Supreme Court justice, but they were all very close and 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 very much friends. Yeah, it wouldn't and, surprise me. Yeah, and we see that they they use flattery and all of these things to sort of gain the the trust of Oliver Wendell Holmes and they target him because he is really he's a Boston Brahmin he's open to experimentation on the US constitution this is really why they they um, gravitate towards him in a, in a similar fashion as they gravitated towards Woodrow Wilson okay. so Holmes and later Roscoe Pound will be the great theorists of sociological jurisprudence, but Louis Brandeis would be its great practitioner. He's putting it into practice. He's the one creating the Louis, the, the Brandeis brief, the sociological uh, approach to case law that we've gone through already. It's largely just facts and stats, things that we can have multiple viewpoints on, not anywhere close to the truth. So in 1908, when he submitted his path-taking brief in Muller versus Oregon, which we've talked about, he mm -hmm. put into practice the theory he had heard Holmes talk about more than a quarter century earlier. So we can see that this plan for sociological jurisprudence happened a long time before the first Brandeis brief was introduced, uh, Muller versus Oregon. That was 1908. Wow, that's that's some that's some heavy shit right there. <laughs> what? It's been in the making since 1908. And yeah, it's like it's just coming back around and everything. It's yeah. It's impressive to and, see. and predictive and the idea of predictive criminology to be able to predict it before it happens and so we think of that very much an idea in the future you know right. depicted in the movie minority report we just actually watched that about three weeks ago when i was in the middle of all of this research because it's it's uh very pertinent you know that movie didn't make sense. Like most of them, like the matrix and all of these things when I was younger and they, we went to the theater to see them. It didn't make any sense to me, but now in my fifties through all of this research, we see, you mm -hmm. know, the messages that are in those movies and the reasons why they're created. Right. So Brandeis lectured at Harvard after graduation and founded both the Harvard law school association in 1886 and the Harvard law review in 1887, naming himself secretary and treasurer. So that is another truth bomb that, wow. you know, is to me on the same level as Brandeis being a key architect to the creation of Israel. Mm -hmm. You know, the Harvard Law Review here, it says, is considered today the oldest. Well, the HLSA is considered today the oldest association of its kind. And the Harvard Law Review, one of the largest circulated law journals in the world. Yeah. Brandeis is Brandeis influential in steering curriculum as a member of the advising committee. 
of which his trustee Zionist lieutenant, of which we've met already, Julian Mack, was a business manager. So we see the same Brandeis group, not just in the creation of Israel, but they are uh, formulating the fundamentals to our modern day uh, law. This is unreal. That Brandeis did, did Brandeis get like a lifetime achievement award or, <laughs> or, or he was just, Oh my God. It's unbelievable. Yeah. There's no, there's no medal of honor or, <laughs> you know, some of these things that the, like other the men most have gotten. accomplished man ever. Yeah. In and terms yeah, actually of, oh my God. I've, I've read reports and, and a few of them where they say that Louis Brandeis was the modern day Jesus Christ. Jeez. But we don't hear of him today, right? We know that no, you know, Brandeis nothing. University. And if Brandeis, you get into yeah. the circle of Brandeis, you'll see that it's all a bunch of sycophants and, the, and he is very revered as one of the greatest U.S. Supreme Court justices of all time. But right. once we, as we're showing here, once we get into the, his life we and get past some of this uh, mainstream apologetics, we start to see the real man. And he has many, many faces. I was going to name this whole uh, series something after that, just the amount of times that he's shown up in all of these things and been a, not just a participant or a member of, but the leader of it. And right. then also responsible, like he is with the Harvard Law Review and the Harvard Law School Association, he's setting up posthumous uh, organizations that are going to live on beyond him. So it's a legacy, oh, yeah. right? He's creating a legacy here. So for he's anybody that's himself, he's naming it, he's naming himself these, you know, these prestigious, yeah. you know, secretary and treasurer and, you yeah. know, it's, whew, he's doing and he's so the chairman, much. He's the chairman of international Zionism. He's the most trusted personal advisor, the sage advisor to all, to the president. Yeah. You know, in the coiner of the term scientific management, we get into, you know, some, I'm not sure there is, uh, certainly I have not found in my research a more influential figure in, in the history of the new world order than, than Louis Brandeis. So Brandeis here uh, stated in his own Brandeis papers from the Harvard Law Review box 114 folder 17, that Brandeis regularly corresponded with the dean and faculty members offering suggestions for courses and advice on the school's management. He provided both advice towards the creation of the Harvard Law Review, served as its first treasurer, and was a trustee until his appointment to the Supreme Court. Now, we've shown that all of that just continued on despite his, his confirmation as a Supreme Court justice. He just sort of went it back into the shadows and, and had his lieutenants, especially Felix Frankfurter, take over all of the uh, political activism and the very fact that he sort of stepped back, you know, shows that he understood just how corrupt he could be perceived in, in the public eye. So Brandeis also served as a member of the law school's visiting committee appointed by the board of overseers. So he is right up there. This is, we're talking the Harvard corporation. So these are really the controllers of Harvard, not just Harvard law school. And there you have a primary source really. I mean, it's my my writing and the text that I put there, but I can show you the the provenance that that's directly from the Brandeis Papers collection at Harvard Law. So, so this that's a picture of Roscoe Pound there in 1870, 
we'll see a picture later of him a lot older. Here's Oliver Wendell Holmes, younger too. He was much, much older when he um, was befriended by the House of Truth set. Here it is here, a picture of Louis Brandeis helping the old man Wendell Holmes down the road. Of course. God, he's been, it, this is a perfect, perfect image of him. Yes. Because he's this just is why like, I included it. It's this, like if a picture could say a thousand words, there it is right there. Yeah. Just like, so, uh, oh, let me help you. No problem. Yep. <laughs> yep. And, and, you know, he's a, both those two guys weren't living at the house of truth, but they were the, the most honored guests at the house mm -hmm. of truth. And the residents were Walter Lippmann, the, father of modern journalism, Felix Frankfurter, right? Some very influential right. figures there. Who we've discussed, yeah. Yep, yep. And so above artifact from Justice Louis D. Brandeis celebrating the 100th anniversary of his confirmation to the U.S. Supreme Court, Harvard Law Today, Harvard Law School Association, Carolyn Kelly. That's, oh, you know what? Let's, I just want to zoom in on that because here is the provenance. 100 years ago, Louis Brandeis was nominated to serve on the United States state supreme court brandeis who entered harvard law school in september 1875 just shy of his 19th birthday had a long history with the school maintaining a close relationship even after his graduation he was a key player in both the creation of the harvard law school association and the harvard law review a member of the visiting committee and an advisor on the school's management and curriculum regularly corresponding with deans and faculty members to offer suggestions while on the court, Brandeis further cultivated his close friendship by allowing Professor Felix Frankfurter to choose all 21 of his clerks from among the school's alumni. So we talked a little bit in the, in the previous episodes about Felix Frankfurter and how he takes over the mission. He's a true Brandeisian. He's like the, the brother, father, son, mentor, protege. This, this relationship is very important to understand. And so what, what that is there that they're admitting is that he has taken 21 of the, the brightest Harvard Law students and given them their first real practical experience underneath Louis Brandeis and Oliver Wendell Holmes as clerks for their law firm. Wow. And a lot of these guys end up being second generation Brandeisians. They are key members inside of FDR's brain trust. So we look at the two socialist uh, presidents, Woodrow Wilson and FDR. We see that a lot of the work was done under Woodrow Wilson, but it wasn't complete yet. And then they had to sit through three presidents that were democratic until they got to FDR. And then because he was heavily involved in the first world war in 1917, he was the secretary of Navy. He knew all of these people. They were very close friends, Frankfurter, Brandeis, FDR. They're old friends going way back 20 something years more. So you can see that finally they get their buddy FDR elected. He does three terms to make sure that they get everything done. And they are patient. They have been sure. very patient. You know? Yep. And, and why? Because it's the sort of a Fabian led movement and Fabianism right. is based on this slow, uh, subtle approach rather than hitting people over the head with a hammer. We talked about the boiling frog scenario. Exactly. So Frankfurter had become Brandeis' surrogate, fulfilling the jurist's urge to be an activist, a need thwarted by the restraints of the black robe. It was Frankfurter who had picked up the burden of defending wages and hours legislation and who furthered the use of the Brandeis brief. So there he is. Now we, we have established that Brandeis was the first person to uh, 
put into a case law argument a collection of sociological information, not necessarily legal information. And now we see Frankfurter perpetuating that. Uh, and today is largely, you know, the way that that case law is argued is mm-hmm. is through the social sciences. So he, Brandeis, was a key player in both the creation of the Harvard Law School Association and the Harvard Law Review. I think I've got that twice, but it's it's always good to say it over again, right? Yeah, seriously. (laughs) To drive it home. So he's a member of the visiting committee and an advisor on the school's management and curriculum regularly corresponding with deans and faculty members to offer suggestions. That's Harvard Law Today. Well, and I, and on just, a website, I want you to, look right now, if you wanted to confirm that, just put in Harvard Law Today, Harvard Law School Association, go to the history uh, tab and and you'll see it. It's all there. Yeah, we, we read the actual quote and everything. And it's like it when they say he was a key player, it's like, yeah, he was the creator. Mm-hmm. Of it. It's it's they they yeah. kind of underscore. They, yes. they kind of like. um I mean, they're paying attention to him, obviously, but just not, it's like just a little off the mark, you know? Yep. Yep. And, you know, he's, he, many times he's placed in a, in a group of men, very influential men, mm-hmm. attorneys, lawyers that are all, you know, of similar mind and similar school of thought, yet he is the one that routinely takes the lead. Right. You know, he's the uh, thinker. He's the one that's putting these philosophies into practice and bringing all these men together for the most part. Yep. And we see that, you know, despite there being 20 other attorneys there, he's the guy that sets the precedent. He's the guy that sets the game plan and directs everybody. Yeah, he seems so, to get everybody dancing, and then suddenly he's out of the picture, and he's on yeah. to get another group yeah. dancing. And actually, that's beat. what I say is is he said <laughs> saved his best for his final act, and that's the disappearing one. Yeah, right? he just disappears from history, yet he has created our entire world in many yes. ways. And we just hear the name Brandeis, and yeah, oh yeah, yeah. And so then we've been talking about Robert Robert Sepper, and yeah. His, yeah historical investigations. And I just wanted to say this about that, that yesterday I was looking into this. You've offered those videos to me a while back and and now I'm just getting into him. And so what he, he states there is that Jacob Frank was a founder of the Illuminati along with uh, uh, Adam Weishoff and Rothschild. So he's right. identifying Jacob Frank and, and Weishoff and Rothschild as the three primary founders of the Illuminati. Now that puts Brandeis zero degrees of separation away from the Illuminati to me. Yes, exactly. Coming from Bohemia. To the Rothschild. Yeah. And he, he, their family comes over with a Rothschild agent as admitted by his historians. And so, you know, it leaves very it makes little. perfect sense. Yeah. Yeah, it leaves yep. very, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there, but. So, well, yeah, yeah it's just like, now we're getting to the point where people should be asking, okay, what is the whole end game here with all of this? And that's what, you know, the next week is going to be about the philosophy of it all and where it all comes from. But first we must establish this scientific aspect. So Nathan Roscoe Pound is one of the most attributed with founding sociological jurisprudence in America. Pound studied Roman law, receiving his BA in 88 and his MA in 89 at Nebraska University. In 1903, Pound became the Dean of the University of Nebraska College of Law. 
1908, he was a founding editor of the annual Bulletin of the American Bar Association. In 1909, he taught at the University of Chicago Law School, and in 1911, Pound moved to Harvard, first as a professor of law, and then from 1916 till 36, so 20 years, he was the dean of the Harvard Law School. Pound stating in his foundational Harvard Law Review article, Sociological Jurisprudence, Its Scope and Purpose, that lawyers are nothing less than social engineers who use their knowledge and experience of the law to deliberately create the framework for a better society. So the, the other great theorist of sociological jurisprudence mentioned in the above quote was Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. nominated Supreme Court Justice in 1902. Holmes held that position for 30 years. One of the most cited justices in American history, Holmes, a Harvard Law alum, stood defiantly against natural law, which all of these guys do. There's a pattern here that they yeah. all detest natural law, just the same as they detest uh, the free market laissez-faire and was famous for his prediction theory believing that crime, especially recidivism or the repeating of criminal offenses can be predicted and then prevented. So this is really the, some of the foundational ideas behind the minority report. This is why that movie was created because this has been the thought all along. This is like the Holy grail for, for, you know, the state, much like the, the magic mushroom and LSD they say was in the search of a truth serum. You know, we see this happening and it's, yep. They're looking for the holy grail of predictive criminology, really. And so, you know, that that is in our minds very much in the future. But, you know, there are there are ways to predict criminology, and we'll get into those in the next part. I'd be very curious what your thoughts are on Philip K. Dick, but that might have to be for another episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and know? I think I, we do involve him in, in our next episode, The Philosophy of Law. Okay, then. Oh, yes. So yeah. that's going to be sure. interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so social control through law is another book that he wrote. And in the introduction page XXI pound defines law as a highly specialized form of social control. So there's, there's narrators involved in this, that social control through law is the story of pound. It includes a lot of his essays and his lectures. So that is their interpretation of his work after looking at it. So Pound was the grand representative of Nebraska and made the orator of the Nebraska Grand Lodge in 1907. He was crowned 33rd degree in 1913 as the past master of Lancaster Lodge number 54 ancient free and accepted masons in Lincoln, Nebraska. It's an interesting place to be, Lincoln. Mm -hmm. when, when he left the cornfields for Boston, he didn't leave his apron behind. Pound was made deputy grand master for the Grand Lodge of Massachusetts almost as if his promotion as a Mason was the main catalyst for his move to Harvard. Either way, they happened simultaneously. And according to Gould's history of Freemason through, Freemasonry throughout the world, which I have on my shelf right here, six volume set I paid $300 for. <laughs> and it says in there, the Grand Lodge of Masons in Massachusetts is not only the senior Grand Lodge, but also the senior Masonic body of any kind now functioning in the Western hemisphere. Holy so that shit. is some major influence and authority and control at the hands of uh, Nathan Roscoe pound, who is the Dean of the Harvard law school at this time. Dude, that's my backyard. Right. Exactly. It's... A lot of this is in Boston, man. Yeah. It's incredible that you and I have connected and this is where <laughs> you live and, 
right? This is very uh, (laughs) relatable for you. Yeah. I mean, I, I, where are you uh, at exactly? I'm a little bit West of Boston by about 40, 40 minutes, 40 miles. Right. And and Brandeis lived uh, West of Boston, somewhere in between Boston and you. My he was God. just a little outside of town. I mean, he had, he had multiple houses, but the one main one was yeah, on the looking that west <laughs> end of Boston on the outskirts. Wow. So we're establishing that Nathan Roscoe Pound isn't just a Freemason, but a major leader in it. So we're talking about, you know, I want to say the word manifest destiny here because it is really a, sort of a outcrop of it or, you know, the the more modern tail endings of it. We're seeing, you know, in this page that I'm showing now, the the background is from one of their books and they start to show how society needs to be developed in the Midwest from its first settlements to a giant city. And you'll see that being played out in the background here because there's four or five pages that I use Mm -hmm. from the book that shows their thinking. So the most important one here probably is this Harvard Lodge. It speaks in here that, you know, there's multiple Masonic lodges on the campus of Harvard, and it's been like this for a long time. So that may come as a surprise to people, but this is really uh, par for the course here. When we talk about the Association of American Universities, and and for me, it, it makes total sense that the Masons would be here. Yep. Oh, yeah. You know, they're always at sort of the 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 founding of cities all over North America, even up in my neck of the woods in the Okanagan Valley, small little towns, some of the first ever to be here and to establish things were Masons. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like a mission missionaries, right? Yeah. It's everywhere, everywhere. And I'm looking at uh, his old house right now. It's down. uh, Brandeis. Yeah. In our very richy rich area. Right. um, Where the Obamas are. are, Really? Well, in a way, they're on Martha's Vineyard, a lot of right. the uh, politicians. Right. But yeah, it's down near near Cape Cod, everything. It's where yeah. a lot of, um, yeah. It's... And the Boston Brahmins, right? They are some of the first settlers. And we've talked about uh, William Eugene Blackstone in the last episode. Right, yeah. Or Blackstone two episodes Valley, ago. Not too and far away from And he's a direct, here. pardon? Sorry, Blackstone Valley, not too far away from here. And that's what we right. um, most likely yep. named and... after him. Yeah, and that's the original settlers of Boston, just like um, the Cabots are one, mm-hmm. and the Lowells are another. And, you know, Lowells and the Cabots, they're very influential in this era, too, you know, wow. yeah. pushing it's progressive. What, it's amazing. And actually, Henry Cabot right Lodge. Sorry? It's amazing what you find right in your backyard without yeah. even, you know, knowing about it. Yeah, so Henry Cabot Lodge is familiar to people, mm-hmm. uh, and Lowell was the the president of um, Harvard. Wow! At this time, so it's it's a bunch of Boston Brahmins. Oliver Wendell Holmes is a Boston Brahmin. His his dad is really one of the ones that coined that term, Oliver Wendell Holmes Senior, and he is connected to the Metaphysical Club and the introduction of philosophy into America. At you know from the get go is Oliver Wendell Holmes's father, so. Uh, Louis Menand is the author and this gets into Oliver Wendell Holmes' dad and Louis Menand we're going to cover in part 9 or 10 he is the the keynote speaker 
at the 2022 Walter Lippmann uh, conference where they question the validity of the expert and what to do next because they feel like they're in the cr- in a crisis that people are identifying the scientific expert as a fraud mm. and people are questioning why the hell we're listening to scientific experts and not the people that we voted for so here's another key point after completing postgraduate work in germany they all returned directly to america by design where each would make significant pioneering contributions to the burgeoning field of sociology at various members of the association of american universities so all of these universities like um like was created the psychiatry the psychiatry uh departments philosophical departments things like that they do the same with sociology it's just a different group of men doing it and around the same time so the three professors of sociology demonstrating a profound collective influence on Pound while at Nebraska Pound becoming a member of the American Sociological Society. So he's the dean of Harvard Law, but he is also a member of the American Sociological Society, which, you know, to the uninitiated or those that are just sort of uh, acclimating to all of this doesn't really make any sense. And this is what historians ask is why it was that Pound was, you know, the dean of Harvard Law, yet so friendly with the sociological department there at nebraska and one of the other guys that's there is um alvin saunders johnson so this goes back to the creation of the inquiry and the executive committee in aid of foreign scholars and that that group photograph of them at the the astoria in the 30s he's here in nebraska with roscoe pound and the founders of sociology too so it's a small world yeah too small so it's here at the University of Nebraska, surrounded by sociologists of the Prussian Historical School. We talked about the three different uh, schools of law. These are all coming from the historical school. And this is where Pound first formulates his revolutionary soci- sociological approach to law. But really, it comes from Prussia and these um, professors there that we will get into. So Pound, the founder of Harvard Law, or Harvard Lodge, AF and AM, and was a prolific contributor to the Harvard chapter of the Acacia Fraternity, giving lectures on Masonic jurisprudence. And so there's a a picture and a page from that specific lecture. And you can see he's labeled on that work as a 33rd degree. Mm. And it's Masonic jurisprudence. So if anybody's, you know, really interested in this, I would suggest, you know, reading some of that. Because yeah, seriously, here's where they're influencing law. And, you know, I this didn't have the time butter. to really get into it to explain it. But I just at this point find it very interesting that he is writing lectures on Masonic jurisprudence when he is setting the foundations for our modern law. Yeah, this is really this is some bread and butter stuff. Yeah. Right. And so you can see in the background there, there's a single uh, re- uh, road delineated by that red line that crosses a bridge. And so this is like the first settlements that they're depicting in, in this book, uh, the first farm there, it says, and the first sort of squared out area. This is the first settlers. And so um, Pound not only, oh yeah, he's a Phi Beta Kappa as well. So all of these guys are Phi Beta Kappa. Of course. And you can see that he's, also involved in the Harvard Masonic Club and the Square and Compass Club. Now that I don't think is a full list of all of the 
Masonic secret societies on the campus there at Harvard. There's, there is more. More compartmentalization. Yeah. So this completely true yet far less accepted view revealing significant connections to both the Phi Beta Kappa Society and Freemasonry. Pound, not only a grand master, but his being chosen to pioneer new expansion into Ivy League academia reveals a type of Masonic long view entrusted only to a 33rd degree master mason. Right? So him and, and Brandeis are close. Mm-hmm. Obviously, they know each other. This is where they both went to school. Brandeis, as we've already talked about, has major influence after he leaves. His scores were the highest for 80 years. So um, so the sociological school theorized by Pound and Holmes Jr. and practiced by Brandeis was first brought to America through the sociological department of the University of Nebraska while Pound was professor of law. Roscoe Pound was close friends with the founders of sociology in America through their shared leadership of the American Sociological Association. So here is the first guys that we're talking about, the founders of sociology. Edward Allsworth Ross, George Eliot Howard, and Albion Woodbury Small. We need to make these guys household names as well. All presidents and Pound present on several committees and vocal proponents. So he's doing lectures in much the same way. He's doing speeches. He's a member. All of these guys end up being presidents of the ASA. Mm-hmm. And, and so all of these guys travel abroad after getting a, a PhD or some form of graduate here in the States. They go to do post-grad work in Prussia in a more specialized social science based education not found in America. These, this technology and this information wasn't being offered at American universities at this time. All of it was coming from Prussia. So if you wanted to be bringing this over, you had to go there to get it. And so I just include some of the, the German names there that are influential. And at the, the, the last one, Wundt, uh, some people might be uh, familiar with. He's you know the first structuralist. He's the founder of psychiatry. He opens up the first experimental laboratory in Prussia the same year, uh, not coincidentally, that William James does the same thing at Harvard. So you can see there's a total connection there. In, in, and, and at this point, it's the rudimentary beginnings of psychiatry where they, it's, they call them structuralists because they're measuring the skull. They're measuring the, the body, the structure of the human being and determining people's intelligence from the size of their skull. So when you look at old pictures of Wont, he's got people sitting in these giant metal contraptions that help measure and and create standards under structuralism. And I will also say here that this is where uh, people say the Illuminati is again, in that Wilhelm Wont is a member of the Illuminati. And so all of these guys... Um, study under him or Carl Nies or Blunchy Ratzenhofer. There's a bunch of them. And these, those guys there are from the, the German historical school. So these guys teach Richard T. Ely, who's a founding member of American press progressivism. He comes back to America just the same as all of these guys do and starts to establish what they learned there into brick and mortar buildings and they establish their own journals, right? So we have the two main pillars of propaganda, brick and mortar. You got institution and then information, uh, a way to disseminate your, your message. And they're 
creating both these guys after they come back from it's the first thing that they do after they come back from Prussia is open up uh, sociological departments at the major universities and they become the founders, especially at Chicago University. So Pound's theory of a functional society stated that there must be social interest in general progress, the claim or want or demand of society that the development of human powers and of human control over nature for the satisfaction of humans wants go forward. The demand that social engineering be increasingly and continually improved as it were this, the self-assertion of the group toward higher and more complete development of human powers. This interest appears in three main forms, an interest in economic progress, an interest in political progress, and an interest in cultural progress. So it's all about progress, evolution, and, and instilling into us that we're always moving forward. Today, it's so normalized that we think it's just an innate part of human nature to, to move forward when it's not. This is much like the dispensationalists in Schofield threw in their version of the Bible. Here, they're redefining things again. And so this is what I'm asking viewers, listeners to consider is progress in its most basic definition and where it all comes from. And so we get into the theory of evolution and the necessary aspect uh, of society always moving forward and how Darwin's theory then gets sort of taken by Herbert Spencer and made into um, uh, social evolution. They start to attribute animal characteristics to humans. And so this is where we get survival of the fittest and all of these kinds of ideas that are totally corrupt in many, many ways, but gets us competing with each other, you know, right. keeping up with the Joneses and all of these things. And that is progress. So. And they knew they had to go at, like they had to attack every form and every part of our understanding of the human being basically in order to, yep convince us of this uh of its because they're competing with natural law yeah so they, and yeah. they all detest they detest natural law all of them they yeah. all say well it. yeah and now they would all say that they don't think even natural law exists they would look at yeah. it as a outdated like truth yeah exactly it's an outdated faux pas it's a philosophy that's just silly now it's an um, old relic right exactly it's western like, like the payphone like the payphone <laughs> You don't yeah. see the payphone anymore, just holes in the concrete or the wall where they once were. And yeah, people young enough would never ask the question as to what was once there. But, you know, people of our Public age know. phones, yeah. <laughs> right? So it's, it's similar. This is how they do it. This is what progress is, right? This is the memory hole depicted in 1984. Yeah. And we, in 8, 9, and 10, we're going to show the exact people that created the memory hole. You know, they're in total control of curriculum in the United States and especially history. So we introduce you to, you know, I say some of the architects of the matrix and the perpetuators of the, you know, Orwell's memory hall. So we're, we're taking the fiction that these Fabians have talked about and we're showing that is really happening. So Edward Allsworth Ross this handsome fella here. He's a, one of the key founders of sociology. And so in the background, you can see now we're moving from farms in, we've got multiple uh, ways in and out of the city. You're starting to see it's expanding. And 
just growing larger around a river. They found a nice place to sort of settle down. And we're just watching the evolution being played out in the background pages there. So he's a sociologist professor at NU from 1901 to 1906. First studied theology and liberal arts at Coe College in the U.S. and before attending the University of Berlin. So we're we're starting to see that you know, almost all of these guys have a theological background too. Oh yeah. On top of their sort of political liberal arts background. So Ross returns to the States landing at Johns Hopkins university where he gained a doctorate degree under Richard T. Eli. And this is a progressive founding father. So he's really establishing like Frankfurter did with, you know, the Harvard law students and creating the next wave Richard T. Ely is doing that with Ross and these guys. So Ross is said to be the most responsible for introducing Roscoe Pound to sociological jurisprudence and a major influence in the development of early criminology writing, Social Control, a survey of the foundations of order in 1901. Now the titles of these guys' books blew me away, right? They're just laying it right out there underneath the concept of law. Right. Social Control, a survey of the foundations of order in 1901. And founding the first professional association of sociologists in the United States, the American Sociological Society, ASS. Yes, they are all yeah. members of ass. And this, <laughs> yeah. Right? They're all a bunch of asses. And they so all a bunch. Yeah. they changed the name actually to the American Sociological Association because I'm, I'm sure that people were making fun of the name. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they were all past presidents of the ass association. And I would agree. So in 1912, Ross writes, Changing America, Studies in Contemporary History, The Old World in the New in 1914, and What is America in 1919? So they're asking the question that the progressives really answered in the books, The New Democracy, The uh, New Freedom, New Nationalism, right? right? So Holy crap, uh, yeah, dude. And these guys are influenced deeply by Marx's economic theory of class conflict and both JHU and University of Chicago are more than any other American university connected directly to the German intellectualism and idealism. This is really why they were established to, to have a door into America that they could step through. Just like the Frankfurt school goes to Columbia and becomes the new school. They want to infiltrate America through its academia. Mm. So from his social control, Edward Allsworth Ross says that law the most formidable engine of, of control employed by society. Wow. He says also on page 106, the law, the most specialized and highly finished engine of social or of control employed by society. And again, largely due to the work of Roscoe Pound, the concept of social, social engineering through law has been popular in the jurisprudence, sociology of law and political science of the Western countries. They're all so proud of it. Substantiated. Sorry. They're all so proud of it. They are. Yeah. Because I think that their part compartmentalized too. They're just looking at this through the eyes of sociology and law. They don't understand the greater, grander picture here. No, this is all a win for them. They think. Yeah. And so there's a, a page shot of social control, the survey of the foundations of order by Edward also Ross, 1901, just to show that it's, it's there. All of these books are actually on archive.org. You can find every single one of them. 
Uh, so for a few golden years, Nebraska laid full-time claim to the intellectual skills of three of the nation's most talented social scientists, Ross, Howard, and Pound, the three that we've introduced you to so far. So turning next to the sociological components of Pound's jurisprudence, it is widely recognized that they were derived largely from the writings of Lester F. Ward, Albion Small, and most especially E.A. Ross, who was a colleague of Pound's at the University of Nebraska. Now, uh, Lester Frank Ward is the father of the welfare state. He's a key sociological founder too, or founder of sociology. He's following the same patterns. Mm. And today, when you Google who's the, the founder or you internet search the founder of uh, the welfare state, you'll find that Lester F. Ward is really the guy considered to be him. So George Eliot Howard graduated Peru State College with a BA, the founder of institutional sociology and the author of the groundbreaking A History of Matrimonial Institutions in 1876. So he's taking sort of control of uh, marriage law and establishing some very interesting things there. Again, I didn't have a lot of time to go down there, but uh, anybody that's interested in looking in, the, in that area would be rewarded, I guarantee. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we talk about the different aspects that they all sort of take a role in infiltrating. That would be his, the history of matrimonial institutions. He's establishing um, marriage counseling and all of those kinds of things. So Howard went to Ludwig Maximilian's Universitat in Munich, where he studied political science, history, and Roman law. Howard returned to the States two years later, earning his MA in 1879. Howard was appointed professor of political science and sociology and was the very first professor of history while also teaching public law with Pound at the University of Nebraska. Uh, in 1894, Howard received his PhD in in 1901, traveled to Stanford and was one of their original faculty members before resigning under controversy. This is one of the other patterns that we see with a lot of these guys is that uh, they create major controversies at, at American universities, like hmm. the Frankfurt School did at Columbia, creates giant uh, factions between the faculties. So for two years, he lectured at Chicago University with Albion Small before returning to NU in 1903 named the head of the Department of Political Science and Sociology and professor of institutional history. Howard remained at NU until his death nearly 20 years later. So they're very influential and, and for many years. So they're teaching the future, uh, the future lawyers, future sociologists. These guys are considered the, the pioneers. They get buildings named after them and all that, you know, that stuff. So Wow. Pound, Howard, and Ross all were members of the University of Nebraska Graduate Club and met regularly at each other's homes to present and discuss papers and directions. So, you know, we're looking at a political salon again. They were members of a smaller, more intimate group, a dinner club known as the Congenial Ten. There they discussed the pressing sociological issues of society, and both Ross and Pound were social and intellectual spark plugs who drew people together and got them talking. So that's very much like the House of Truth, very much like Salk of Vertales, uh, political salons and the Fuchtenwangers that we talked about in California, and this, the infiltration of Hollywood through film noir and horror films, the same things happening here, same exact pattern. They're just meeting at, at each other's homes and, and discussing what they want to do. Mm -hmm. So I just include some actual pictures of these books just to show, right. That they exist. And, and the titles are very intriguing to me. Yeah. I circle this here because it shows that it's the Century Club publishing these. So the Century Club is the Bohemian Club. This is, you know, we want to 
talk about the magic mushroom and all of that era, that's all Century Club members too and the creation of uh, the magic mushroom, LSD. Interesting. Uh, Gordon Wasson was the VP of uh, public relations for JP Morgan. And they, right. the CIA paid him to go find this magic mushroom that was rumored to be in existence in Mexico. And he found it, brought it back, and they made it into LSD. So it's a Century Club still, you know, uh, involved there. We're seeing the Century Club actually um, funding the public publications of these guys. Okay. And then in the forward of one of the uh, social control through law. Oh, no, I think it's another book, actually. I might state it here. But it's from one of these founders of sociology, and they are saying in the foreword, they're dedicating the book to Lester Frank Ward, to my master, Lester yeah. F. Ward, pioneer and pathfinder in the study of society. And so he's the um, father of the welfare state. Mm. And so they're dedicating things to him. He's a very influential guy. And, you know, none of these guys we've heard of yet, we very much live in their world. So Pound was an active member of the American Sociological Society and Ross, Howard, and Small were all presidents of the ASS. As president, Howard organized the 1917 meeting on the topic of social control. His ad address titled Ideals as a Factor in the Future Control of International Society. So he's talking about using ideals to influence and move and persuade people. So I remind people of unattainable ideals, you know, on noble lies, this trick that they've done throughout history. To get you involved in something, a greater good that you think that you're influencing for the better, the lives of everybody, when in fact it's an unattainable ideal to completely eliminate crime from society. Mm -hmm. Right. But we're pushed by this noble ideal. So you can see that in their first meetings, he's suggesting ideals as a factor of persuasion and the future control of international society, not just America. So as many years before the Paris Peace Conference in the, new, in the creation of the League of Nations, yet we see that they all seemingly kind of either sense or know that there is a war coming. So while the U.S. was entering the war, academia was already preparing for a future international peace conference aroused by the thought of ideals, largely seen then and today as unattainable, being used as catalysts for social change. Other lectures that day were titled War as a Crisis in Social Control. So we talk about don't ever let a good crisis go to waste. This may be some of the foundational meetings in which they derived a lot of that. So social control in a democracy was another topic of discussion. And social control in international relations was another. These you know founding meetings of sociology, of which these men are now running, controlling, uh, creating the journals, disseminating all the information and creating a, a trying to legitimate a soft science like they did with psychiatry and a lot of these other things. You know, I remember as a child, people would laugh at psychiatry when people considered it a science because right. it's not a hard science. You don't have a lot of things that you can look to and say and prove and, and demonstrate like you can with hard sciences and physics and things like that. So it was very contentious. Uh, very provocative in the day, this creation of sociology and psychiatry. Uh, today, four generations later, it's just we're immersed in it. We're born into it. It's our social contract. It's normalized. So here's a picture of Albion Woodbury Small. He was born to a reverend too. And his mom's name was Thankful Lincoln. <laughs> There's Lincoln again. <laughs> 
right? And so I remind people of the four presidents on Mount Rushmore. It's developed out of the House of Truth. So mm-hmm. it's a progressive, uh, it's a big neon sign for progressivism, really. So Albion studied as a young boy at the Newton Theological Institute, but was never ordained, instead choosing to focus on the social sciences being taught out of the German historical school. A centralized, bureaucratic, administrative, progressive government increasingly more reliant on quantitative data with an aspect of social responsibility is really what the German historical school is. And that sounds a lot like American progressivism. And today, too, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And quantitative data here is implying a scientific expert. They're they're looking at censuses and ways to gather uh, quantitative information. So metadata is the phrase that we use today. So small clung tightly to the tenets of especially the social gospel. Now we went through that in the last episode, the importance of social gospel and Brandeis's influence there with Walter Rauschenberg, his uh, future, whatever that is. You know, we've already covered how Rauschenbusch's son marries Brandeis's daughter and become the next generation of economists creating revolutionary legislative change. So I'm not sure what that affiliation is, what we would call that, but they're both grandfathers, right, of of uh, Elizabeth and what's his name's children. Mm. So they're family, right? They're yeah. close family. The Russian Bushes and and the Brandeises. How convenient. So Small credited with founding the first sociology department at Chicago University after studying under the founder and longtime chair of the German Economic Association, Gustav von Schmoller. Spell mistake there. The Schmoller, an early teacher of the social sciences and was a major influence in the progressive movement in the United States. When you go look at uh, his wiki page, this is what they say. And he here, I included the German Economic Association because it, it's very familiar with what's going on in the States, how they're all becoming presidents of economic associations, statistical associations, sociological associations, and distributing uh, the periodicals. So we see this pattern, this create this this uh, process, you know, happening in in Prussia before it happens here. So they're just kind of taking the lead of these Prussian, uh, historical school professors. Mm. Uh, Schmoller, an early teacher of the social sciences. Yes, I covered that. And so this is the origins of social sciences. And, and this is why social sciences existed because of the Prussian Reformation. They needed to, if they wanted to reform their society, they had to start gathering information on society to be able to better decide which direction they wanted to go. This is really the, the basis behind censuses. So Small wrote his dissertation at JHU upon returning from Germany entitled The Beginnings of American Nationality. And Hmm. guess who was members of his PhD committee? Woodrow Wilson and Richard T. Ely. Familiar names. (laughs) Right. And all progressives, major progressives. Woodrow Wilson and Richard T. Ely, I would put as founding fathers of progressivism. Right there with Theodore Roosevelt, Walter Lippmann, Louis Brandeis, Felix Frankfurter. Um, Charles Beard, James Harvey Robinson. It's all a big circle. They're all members of the same crew. They're all friends. They're all using each other to forward this progressive agenda. So Small explained his conception of sociology rooted in evolutionism. 
Okay, so there is how they are establishing it in evolutionism, the, the idea that we are always evolving and moving forward. Now, not just not moving backwards, but we're not even stagnant. We're not even just staying in our traditional places, but we are always moving forward. So this enabled them then to change society. So its goal should be to determine social forces by studying the global dynamics of society, its social process in order to control social change in accordance with ethical principles for the good of society in general. That's from the ASA website. You can go look right now and it's there. I just pulled that off the internet last night. So we see social forces studying global dynamics of society uh, to make a better social process in order for social change. So we see that, you know, law is really to change society, not to necessarily keep us in, you know, a framework or, you know, protect us from ourselves or creating, committing crimes. It's, it's more about social control. So the current study is a qualitative content analysis of the manuscripts written by William G. Sumner, Lester F. Ward, Franklin H. Giddings, Albion W. Small, Charles H. Cooley, and Edward A. Ross. Those other names here, some of them we do get into here because there's some interesting parallels. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. These individuals are generally considered to be the founders of American academic sociology. Their writings can tell a great deal about the development of Marxian sociology in the United States. Mm. The present study supports the theory that those founders working at the universities in the Midwest were more likely to discuss Marx than the founders from the East Coast because those in the Midwest were at institutions which were more progressive. The founders often addressed Marx's concepts, which related to his discussions of class, surplus value, capital, capitalism, historical materialism, class consciousness, and property. So these guys, this whole idea is born out of Marxist uh, theory. So William Graham Sumner is mentioned above, and I included him here um, for some reasons here I'll get into. So he was named first president of the burgeoning sociological society. And we now see undeniably the entire modern fields of sociology and law, as were so many other fields of American academic study first formed overseas in Prussia. Schools of thought brought forward from the Prussian Reformation and imprinted onto the minds of these distinguished men of letters and numbers, sociology and law looked at from the perspective of these social engineers all of a sudden become major tools of social control, the most specialized engine of social control. In fact, and it was all invented by men we've never heard of during times we've never lived. Yeah, I'm it's becoming more and more sure that I need to start looking into that time period in Prussia, particularly. Yes, for sure. This is where our research is going. So mm-hmm. we see it now a village. If you look into the background picture there, I tried to keep it as see through as I could, but I had to mm-hmm. put all of this information in there too. So. No, this is uh, beautifully a, done, Dwayne. Yeah, I made it transparent so you can kind of see what's going on there. And so now we move into the city. You can see it labeled here in behind his head. It's now their depiction of a city, how many ever years later. 
and you see that everybody's been, you know, cordoned into their own specific boxes, and we see the establishment of a, a larger community known as a city. So Sumner, he's Phi Beta Kappa Skull and Bones, attended Göttingen in Germany postgrad in 1867. He was ordained a deacon in the Protestant Episcopal Church at Trinity Church in New Haven. New Haven's where Yale is. Mm -hmm. He was the chair of political and social sciences at Yale and remained there until his death. So all of these guys maintained their positions forever. President of Ass, 1908-1909. Sumner was inspired by Herbert Spencer and Auguste Comte. Now, these are key guys we're going to get into in, to, in the philosophy of law next week. Taught first ever course called sociology, setting the groundwork for formal academic sociology by Durkheim and Max Weber. Weber, or Weber, another very influential figure in the development of social sciences. And I would say that some people that are you know, knowledgeable in, in this field of sociology might say that Weber is more influential than all of these men. I'm including this information here to, to discredit that. We're showing that Weber actually gained a lot of his uh, information from these men, mm. as documented in their own work, and when you look at the time period, these guys come before Weber. Right. So Albion Woodbury Small showing a similar pattern after graduating from Colby College in 1876, studying theology at Andover Newton Theological School in Massachusetts. I traveled to Germany two years post-grad, social economics, politics, and he's at Leipzig, Berlin University. So in 1889, Small then travels back to America, gaining his PhD at Johns Hopkins and founding the very first sociological department at the University of Chicago in 1892, where he would remain the acting, acting chairman for over 30 years. So Small, he's a very influential figure in sociology. He's one of the, the Mount Rushmores of it. Uh, Small revealing another familiar pattern by harnessing the two main pillars of propaganda institution and information by establishing a brick and mortar research department with the faculty while also creating from out of nowhere the foundational literature, literature for a burgeoning new specialty science. So for those that don't know, University of Chicago was uh, founded as a BAP, the first Baptist university. I think we covered that last week by Rockefeller and this uh, Baptist organization. I can't remember the name of it, but uh, you can go back to the last article and see. So here we have, because we like to look at these, the logo from the Johns Hopkins. Mm -hmm. And I haven't actually had a real time to look at this, but this is coming straight over from Prussia. Hmm. And this, this is their state shield. You see that even on their football teams and, you know, representatives yep. of, of Baltimore. So he small writing the first sociology textbook, an introduction to the study of society in 1894. He authors the first sociological journal, the American journal of sociology and was elected Dean of the university of Chicago graduate school of arts and literature. Now that is a, that is a very authoritative position. I haven't been able to look very deeply into these, you know, each university has a graduate school of arts and literature and I think it's it's a very important aspect to all of this in that it, I get the sense that it is an overarching, overall comprehensive authority over uh, the School of Arts and Literature. And so these guys are getting put into the, the highest positions of managerial, you know, we, we want to talk about the two classes that Chomsky has identified, 
that are very, you know, open and, you know, self-evident now the 20% of the managerial class. And then there's the 80% of the labor workers like you and me, mm-hmm. um, we're seeing, you know, the establishment of that. And that's what they're talking about here. That's impressive. My dog's having issues here. <laughs> so Lester Frank Ward, the guy with the lamb chops. Yeah. Like man. I've never seen lamb Do chops like that. Yeah, they're intense. I don't know what kind of statement he's trying to make there. Yeah. I did an invisible, a transparent background and it, it's quite comical because I had to lead in his, his sideburn. But it's just, <laughs> you know, it's pretty crazy. All of the facial stuff is, is so much of a reward for investigators of this time. I mean, you come up with some of the most radical uh, shows of facial hair I've ever seen. <laughs> so Lester Frank Ward is considered the father of the welfare state and was the very first president of ass in 1906, 1907. He remained at Brown University, an Ivy League university, until his death. His book, Dynamic Sociology, was revolutionary, arguing that progress depended on a planned society led and controlled by a benevolent government that provided universal education, freedom from poverty, and happiness for all. When this book was first established, or when this book was first published, courses in sociology were non-existent in American universities. And by the time the second edition was published in 1896, sociology was being taught in all colleges. That's from the Lester Frank Ward paper. So you can see that they're very influential in establishing the entire field of sociology. Sociology, you know, uh, synonymous with social sciences. This is the founding of, you know, all of the social sciences come through the founding of sociology because sociology is the study of human beings and society. This is central. And real quick, I want to uh, shout out. uh, Well, first of all, thank you for everybody who's watching tonight. Appreciate it. We got 12 people checking it out right now. Cool. Cool. Welcome, everybody. And uh, also shout out to Jamie Rainwater. He says this series finally cracked his best friend's perspective wide open once he realized uh, that he says Bernays co-opted all three branches of the government, but he meant Brandeis. But right. Bernays, yep. of course, yeah, is there absolutely too. right here and connected to all this. So those, mm. yeah, having him on your mind is uh, is you're not far off. You know, it's there. It's the same. It's the same movement. These guys all have different <laughs> roles to fulfill. Edward Bernays today, for those that don't know, is the father of propaganda. He literally wrote the book on it called Propaganda 1921, the year before Walter Lippmann wrote Public Opinion. Now, they all work together in the Committee on Public Information to get all of America behind the idea of America going to war for the first time ever, Right. America right. was really born on the idea of non-interventionalism and pacifism. They wanted nothing to do with foreign entanglements, but they were drawn into that first world war. And it's the CPI headed by uh, Edward Bernays in many ways. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we see, I'm coming out with a, a new video on, on the inquiry in Paris. And we show how, you know, a lot of those phrases like making wor- the world safe for democracy is as uh, Bernaysian as you can get. Mm-hmm. And they were very influential in all of the propaganda. When Wilson first arrived in London, you see signs or in Paris, you see signs that say Viva Wilson, long live Wilson and the American bunting and the red, white and blue. And, and all of this is to create a Godhead symbol is what Bernays called Wilson. That was their goal. They needed to make Wilson the Godhead symbol for the world. 
And that's really what we see is that everybody depended on Wilson when he came to Paris to uh, create a new heaven on earth mm -hmm. through the League of Nations. And we see that, you know, through the development of the League of Nations, now the UN, we see really it wasn't the war to end all wars and, and the peace conference didn't create peace. What they did was create perpetual war. And, you know, you and I, we've been born into a world of perpetual war. There's never really been a time of peace in the 50 years, 52 years I've been on this planet. No, not at all. And yes. so we can thank these guys. So in the background, we see the distributive network. This is the second to last page that they show. So you can see Indianapolis as a central hub, and then it branches off into all of these smaller towns. And that is a great depiction of distributive networks. Hmm. Right. Yeah. So, man, it looks like it literally looks like nodes. Yep. Exactly. That's exactly what they're, they created. And a lot of this is just by nature. The, you know, I say that geography is the number one determining factor in where we settle. Mm -hmm. Right. And so a lot of it is geographical, but you can see that in the end, it becomes a distributive network. You can get from one place to another on multiple pathways. You, if one pathway gets uh, stopped through an avalanche or a flood, you can still get to that place from another way. It's all and kind of the idea. It, it is like a supersession of nature in a way. Yeah. Um, whether it's allowed or not by nature, I mean, it becomes nature. We, I, this is a broader argument, but like the mm. fact that we, um, we are part of nature versus we are stepping through nature. You know, these, yeah. this is a, an interesting philosophical argument that's gone on for forever and continues to go on, you know, and I'm sure at some level it comes into play with these sociology people, yeah. you know, this argument yeah. of whether we are part of nature and does that, does that say we're allowed to change it? And I right. think they're arguing that it does. And yes. I don't necessarily agree with that, that most right. of nature just goes along with their part in it. Yeah. And we showed this in part two, that it's even a religious aspect. You know, this is what God told Adam and Eve was to go forth and procreate and dominate the birds of the air, the fish of the sea to control it all. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that might ruffle some feathers, but, you know, just go read um the bible and it's at the very beginning of the book right exactly and hey we're and getting so, a lot of feedback here um yep. we got curious about how the introduction of cybernetics influenced the rise and popularity of the social sciences and i would say we have kind of covered some of that in a previous episode mm -hmm. before this series um mm -hmm. jamie if you the want to very go back first episodes that you and i did andy Right. If you want to go back a while, I could get you the episode numbers, but yeah, check out my channel. Perfect. Yeah. Go back to the future. Perfect episodes that Dwayne and I did covering earlier articles mm -hmm. that he put out the <laughs> Dwayne, now, you are a treasure. I'm telling now, you, man. <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you this about cybernetics is that we often say that it comes from the technocratic movement, the technocracy of which uh, Elon Musk's dad is a member Mm -hmm. But it, but really, this is like saying that history began with FDR. There's much more being established prior to this. Uh, right. So, you know, and it's it, had it's, its tracks hidden, as Jamie yeah. earlier said. It really has. Yeah, because its names have changed throughout history. And what did James say? Uh, he was saying that it, it uh, he had it, it. It's this has had its tracks pretty well covered 
you know, for like a century. And yeah, you're right. It really has. It's been kind of hiding in plain sight this whole time. And this is why I say that the progressive movement is so important to understand. It's because the technocracy comes out of the efficiency movement. The efficiency right. movement is one of two main pillars of the progressive movement. The other one being preparedness. Now we see today preparedness being a main catalyst. We talk about unattainable ideals, collective security, and all of these things. This is where it comes from. So, you know, I'm glad that, and I had a two and a half hour talk with a friend of mine on Facebook today about all of this. And, and really it's our goal to help people because this is what happened when I started researching this. It, it all of a sudden started putting things into place for me. You know, pieces of the puzzle were just falling in. I'm like, oh, that totally makes sense. This is a, a sophisticated, more mature way to sort of approach all of this. We can use better words than debunk and triggered and all of these things and step out of the right, wrong paradigm and just talk about real documented history and, and not get into any conspiracy theory at all, just to show that this is, this is what it is. Right. It's in, in the normalized language and the things that we haven't really been paying attention to, because I haven't seen anybody break into the law like this sociological jurisprudence and, and show how they used it as the main engine of social control. Right. We, we kind of uh, we get a lot of provocative things in the conspiracy community about Black's Law Book and what legal definitions really are mm -hmm. and certain things like that. And we get a lot of Jordan Maxwell stuff about, right. you know, the law of water. And it's all very provocative and some of it yep. might be true. I mean, the yep. law of water and all that kind of stuff. Sure. But I never hear them talk about any of this. Nope. which is literally the origin of the corruption, if anything, yeah. of law. I so. will give Jordan Maxwell uh, props in that in one video, he mentions Isaiah Bowman. Now that's pretty deep to mention Isaiah Bowman, mm. but he does. He mentions the creation of the inquiry, which we're going to get into in 8, 9, 10, and the establishment of all of this internationally. Right. And so Jordan Maxwell does mention Isaiah Bowman. And, and a lot of these guys do mention, as we know about, maybe 80% true, but mm -hmm. you can see that none of them, they all stop short as if it's a cul-de-sac at progressivism. And now I'm even trying to introduce people to this and I'm seeing just an incredible reaction to it, uh, especially from progressives. Well, uh, yeah. Today's yeah. progressives, I don't even think they understand that they're neoliberal and they're radical. They're like a fundamental group almost within America that's, creating a revolutionary change, working against their own self-interest unwittingly. I mean, it's, it's crazy. I've had some major run-ins with progressives over the last week or so. If you've been on my Facebook page, I've just been demonstrating how they will refuse to talk to you about any of your work. They will just sit there and tear you down and attack me as a person. And this is why mm -hmm. we're bulletproof. Don't shoot the messenger, man. Hell yeah. We're just showing you the history I'm asking you to consider it. I'm not asking you to accept it. And a sign of the wise is to be able to consider something without accepting it. Yet the personal attacks on me will just continue. And at all costs, they, they want to avoid this, this uh, truth that progressivism is the Trojan horse in which the new world order sort of entered America. 
I'm you know, mostly pissed off. I'm I'm mostly pissed off when I see you show me examples. You know, I mean, you tag me in a lot of these mm-hmm. posts that you're making, and you know, you're making su- like extremely valid claims. You're backing up everything you're saying. Mm-hmm. You're giving citations. You're showing examples. You're sending links, and these people just straight up ignore or. Yeah say something off-putting and these are you know you're kind of uh you're getting the attention or you're annoying at least some key people in in bigger areas of uh alternate quote-unquote alternative media um yeah and it's uh it's interesting to watch your uh the the reactions they're having or the lack thereof or yeah whatever and i would and i would warn people against you know following these people if they are displaying such a shitty process you know, we've been showing that with a few of these people, just how emotional and and unhinged they become. And and once you're emotional, all is lost. You might as well take a 15-minute break and come back, you know, after taking a breather. Because as soon as you're emotional, as we know, they got you. Whether yep. you're super happy or super angry, that means you've been propagandized against. So when you're when you're sitting there watching the Titanic and the at the end and you're tears are coming out of your eyes you're being propagandized against there's just you know that is a telltale symptom of being uh, under the influence of propaganda Mm -hmm. so even when we're happy about things you know we're cheering on uh maybe negative things that have happened to who we perceive as our opponents i'm asking everybody to be better to to find more sophisticated uh, arguments and this is really the basis of our work this is what i want to prevent or to present to people is real tools that you can now use and 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 terms that you can speak in and real history that you know that you can now translate to the family friends and groups of people that don't want to talk to you anymore because i find that i get way farther when i'm talking about labor unions when i'm yes. talking about the founders of sociology uh, science, principles of scientific management, how that book has a, a fascies uh, on the front and how that was translated into multiple different languages and shared with Stalin and Trotsky. You know, I get far farther than, you know, certainly spreading QAnon, Q Tartary, <laughs> or, yes. you know, anything unproven really to me at this point, anything unproven, I'm trying to stay away from because we have everything we need in the progressive era to turn this over yeah seriously i mean it's just the difference between yelling that one giant group of people or one small group of people is running everything and they're just mm-hmm. making a bold claim like that versus yeah. showing uh you know empirically yeah and i would where say where these very, people come from it's very unfair to the truth movement when we have the truth we have the ultimate silencer yet we allow ourselves to be degraded into arguments of right wrong black white you know these uh, false dilemmas we have the truth people remember that so you know act like it and Damn so right. don't be emotionally pulled into right and wrong and one of the greatest ways to not just be in a battle of opinions is to provide evidence this is the great difference between a logical fallacy you know and the what do I call it? The uh, rhetorical tools of a polemic, right? Is, you know, 
next time anybody's listening to the mainstream or you know anybody for that matter that is telling you history or trying to tell you facts understand that without the evidence of proof you cannot actually trust or believe or go forward thinking that is knowledge until right. you see provenance receipts evidence something demonstrable you know i you i would be careful in in believing anything or believing in anything other than yourself. So, Bingo. Uh, so Franklin Henry Giddings, he was the son of a very prominent congregational reverend, a professor of political science at Bryn Mawr College beginning in 1888 and would leave to become the chair of sociology at Columbia. Also considered a founder of sociology, Giddings wrote The Principles of Sociology in 1896, The Theory of Socialization in 1897, and The Elements of Sociology in 1898. So he's very prolific. I wonder, you know, how it is that one guy can write three books in three years when it's taken me 10 years and I don't have one yet. <laughs> it shows that there's obviously, you know, people behind them. And we know that Russell Sage is public publishing. We know that the National Consumers League is doing all kinds of background work and collating and cataloging and collecting information to build these guys as arguments and create things. So we've really seen this see. a number of times in the modern times as well, where yeah. like Klaus Schwab and yeah. face came out with COVID-19, the great reset, uh, what, like six months, not even maybe three or four months after the pandemic started. Yeah. Um, right. That was ridiculous. Um, the Maui fires, there was a book yeah. written about it um, before Maui was even done smoking. Uh, there was, mm -hmm. yeah, it's, we, we find this often in yep. uh, times where we can kind of suppose that there was some, some, um, predictive qualities in the events, you know? Yeah. I would say that's another aspect to the importance of this information that is so relatable to today. You, you know, they're using the same terminology, the same tricks. It's the same oh, yeah. patterns, same people. patterns, patterns. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, Giddings, he was the president of the American Academy of Political and Social Science and a member of the Century Club, Academy of Natural Sciences of Philadelphia, the vice president of the American Economic Association, and considered a founder of ASS. Ass, there it is. He's a founding ass. See, Truth says they should, they, if they could start a band called Presidents of Ass, that would be beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Anything to make these guys' names household, I'm for it. So, yep. <laughs> Let's uh, get on it. The, the following men were elected officers of the new society. Lester Ward was the president. William Sumner, the first vice president. Franklin Giddings, the second vice president. And we see E.A. Ross was a council member along with Albion Small. So they're in with this crew. And when they left Baltimore, the birth of the American Sociological or sociological society was complete. A constitution had been adopted. Officers were elected and plans were made for the second annual meeting of the new society. And that's from the ASA website, history of the American sociological association. It's showing postal routes and how they would have got the mail through. Wow. This is the very beginnings. You know, this is 1880. There's a lot of already movement towards the west a lot of established cities and things but it's still in the process of moving west and these guys are you know showing the best ways maybe to do that 
That's amazing. So there's Roscoe Pound again here, and this is from Socializing in Law. Looks Roscoe like he's a little Pound. older here. Yeah, right? Yep, totally. So Roscoe Pound is a rising young law professor at the University of Chicago in 1909, the year his brilliant article, Liberty of Contract, sounded his call for a new sociological jurisprudence and established him as the leading thinker of legal progressivism. <laughs> That's radical see things like that. Uh, that so, title alone, Liberty of Contract. Yeah. It's... It reminds me, yeah. I recently rewatched um, Verhoeven's uh, Starship Troopers. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so brilliant. And the language, I think he knew all about the progressives and what they were doing because, I, in my opinion, that's the, a lot of people claim that it's like some fascist society that they're idealizing or uh, critiquing and making fun of in Starship Troopers. But to me, what we're talking about in this series is exactly what Starship Troopers is. All these men with these fancy, like all the language itself, everything is, uh, you know, freedom this, and, you know, it's really over the top and all this. And I think it's, um, it's kind of coined as a redneck Republican conservative thing in modern right. society. Yeah, and it's yeah, not, yeah. it's a yeah. progressive thing. To, I'm gonna have to watch to, Starship Troopers to fucking poison every sentence you speak, yeah, with with prov prov like provocation, basically. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna have to watch that now. Have you not seen it? You need to. I've seen it, but so many years ago. Right. Yeah. Before all <laughs> Just this watched research. it for the violence back then. <laughs> yeah, for the entertainment, not the right. entertainment. Exactly. So, Together, Ward, Small, Howard, Ross, and Pound established sociology as a legit science and set the future course for both sociology and sociological jurisprudence in America for the rest of the 20th century. That's me saying that. So other interesting past presidents of ASS include George Edgar Vincent, 1916. Vincent was the president of the Chautauqua Institution, funded hmm. by Rockefeller. Yep. And co-writer with Albion W. Small of an introduction to the study of society. So Chautauqua, right? This we mm -hmm. sort of got into this a little bit with the gospel, social gospel movement, and Chautauqua is really this traveling um, missionary education recruitment sort of movement. Yeah, and, you know Hillary Clinton, I think, lives in Chautauqua, <laughs> Chautauqua, <sighs> New York. So you know, this Chautauqua movement is is very interesting because it travels all over America, influencing and propagandizing and persuading and recruiting under uh, religious connotations. And that, those, they bought the Pacific Palisades before there were any houses there, the Chautauquas. That was the first right. real established people there. Now it's all largely rich Jewish people that live in the Pacific Palisades, the hills northwest of L.A., so other past presidents of ASS include the two main contributors to the Princeton Radio Research Project and the famous Invasion from Mars War of the Worlds broadcast, Robert K. Merton, born Meyer Robert Skolnick, and Paul Felix Lazarsfeld. These two were also funded heavily in their work by the Rockefeller Foundation. Lazarsfeld comes from Vienna. He is part of that movement in the 30s, uh, the Executive Committee for Displaced Scholars. He's one of them. And they put him right at Columbia University with uh, the, the 
Frankfurt School, but first he's at Princeton with Merton and they create help establish this Princeton Radio Research Project where they're just recording the behavior of radio listeners at that point because there was no mm. TV. Right. Oh, man. Yeah. Radio was so influential, man. And just as a side, mm -hmm. I'm a huge, huge fan of audio uh, fiction, audio drama. Mm. Um, and it's it's made a massive comeback with the advent of the technology we're using now for podcasting. Everything sure. being at our fingertips so much yeah. easier as a consumer, um, it's made it a lot easier for everyone in the world to make their own amazing stories come to life with full casts yeah. and sound effects and everything. Totally. Just as that medium was famous before Hollywood even existed or got its grips into us, it was the radio dramas that that drove yeah. everything and, and yeah. entertainment and you know I just, i'm sorry i'm going off on this little tangent here but yeah, go for it. the um the war of the worlds things like that very much predictive programming um mm -hmm. by p very connected people as well you know yep. um things like that now what has been a very independent uh push and small company kind of thing for a lot for a lot of years now uh more and more influx of familiar hollywood actor names and producer names flooding into the audio dramas once again yeah. it's just an interesting thing to see i just wanted to mention it as yeah. any chance i can get and um right. Yeah, real quick, I just wanted to shout out Bertie Brosnan. He's an excellent filmmaker as well cool. and storyteller, and he's an Irish historian, and he makes a lot of films about the ancient Ireland and all the stories there. And, you know, someone else, uh, Lisa Love Schubel, says, I feel they overlaid their <laughs> ideas over much older writings, just a thought. And I totally yeah. agree, and Dwayne yeah. and I have spoken yeah. at length about this, how this is the most comprehensive and empirical way to you know un <laughs> unclothe what happened to yeah. us and what's going on today yeah, yeah uncloak right. it yeah. yeah but this it's not necessarily the beginning this all comes no. from you know we go back to joseph or jacob frank but Jacob yep. Frank was influenced by Zevi, you know, 50 yep. years earlier. And yep. Lord knows it just goes back further and further. So this yep. is same a with, massive work. And same with this progressive era we're, we're yes. showing. And we are going to break that down in the next show of how that goes back to, you know, even before Prussia and Sweden's involvement in all of this. And to Lisa, hello. I would say that... This is the modern rendition, and this is really where I chose to plant my flag because we can prove a lot of this through the documents. You know, we, we are in a special time where we are availed both the documents and, you know, any uh, documents that the intelligence communities were keeping. You know, a lot of that is public now. We're over 100 years since it happened. Mm. And so, you know, motion picture is just being established during these times. So we do have motion picture and actual photographs of these people. So they are provable and relatable. That's why I chose this because yes. I wanted to stay in a place that I could prove. And then from there, go forward and show the modern implications and the, the, what this has done in its furthest imagination. And then, you know, through my hookup with Andy Rouse, we wanted to then show that this is a, 
a longer game that goes way back into history. And you're totally right that, you know, that this isn't the founding of it. This is why I usually will say the, the modern founder, um, if, if this goes back, you know, we're further in we're, history. If I may, we're in a revenge story of, of sorts, um, a family yeah. feud even per se, a massive one. And this is the biggest and most recent chapter and the most provable mm. one, the most evident yeah. one. Yeah. Um, and it does connect back further and further and further, mm -hmm. the further back we go. And the more amazing it gets, the further back you go. We get exactly. into the Cameralists and the enlightened oh absolutists yes. next week. Next week, we're going to talk and about how this all goes back even further. That's going to be very exciting because we did have someone oh, else, Charles, Charles Dennis, mentioned early. He said Swiss Templars. And I was like, "Whoom! where did that come from? And how right. does that fit right now? And it's just, yeah, the Templars and everything, it's probably a very big connection that we'll probably have yeah. to come to later on. Yep. And next week we we're going to talk about David Hume, Jeremy Bentham. These guys were alive 300 years ago. Mm -hmm. And this is where a lot of these thoughts are born. Now I'm not saying that David Hume and Jeremy Bentham were, you know, members of the new world order and they were bringing forth new technology, but I am saying that their technology and their ideas were used later, you know, mm -hmm. uh, Bentham and Hume you know, sort of founders of utility, utilitarianism. And from that comes this greater good for the greater society. Bentham creates a pleasure quotient equation in which you're supposed to, in determining uh, what you're doing next, you're supposed to gauge it on how much pleasure you you bring. And he has a, like a seven or eight point little, uh, chart that you're supposed to have personally and that's this is how you're determining what your right acts are from wrong is how much pleasure and so we get into hedonism and all of those uh things that then lead into some other things that maybe people are already catching on to but in interest of time especially of yours andy uh <laughs> we'll we'll stop there because i don't want to give away everything for next week but this sure. we're going to show the culmination of all of this. This is why I broke it into two because there was just so much here. I saw that one is a scientific aspect and then the philosophical. So I just broke it into, and tonight we cover the science and and next the philosophy and the merging of that's going to blow everybody's minds. Dude, this is I think uh, we're we're um, we're doing this very well. You and I are. Yeah, I do too. In stride with one another on this, I, th I think it's yeah. great that you broke it down into two like that. I think it's yeah. really important that that happens. Well, when I first started this, it was almost like Jack Kerouac wrote on the road on one piece of paper. I just kept writing, and I kept running into these incredible associations, and kept writing and writing and writing because I couldn't find an end to it. I was trying to find a way to clip it off but there was just so much that the one article turned into this 10-part series and so uh, yeah i remember the I day i was like what have you ever heard of positivism and you're like right. oh, exactly <laughs> you know and off we went yeah and, and just the terminology that we're unveiling and sort of uncovering is very important to understand all these terms we know that they they trick us through the language and spelling and mm -hmm. so the more of these uh, terms like scientific management that we know the and in combination with understanding logical fallacy right 
and the progressive era, we could really literally never be fooled again. As long as we continue to disseminate this information, this would be part of a major history uh, class, I would say. You know, Hell this yeah. would be some of the, the more important information to pass along, especially if we flip this new world order from from top down to bottom up. We would start to use this information as a as a as a warning, right? As a as a show of this segment and era in our life where we fell to soothing, nice sounding words. Uh, yeah. You know, they came in through the sentimental door of liberalism for a reason, because conservatism oh, great... is based in tradition and keeping things more similar to the way they are than to change them. Yeah, man, and and people just. Uh... You know, if this is educating anyone, I do have this under the the education uh, label on YouTube. Right. I'm trying to fuck with them. You know, if they want, yeah. right, they can, right, they can try yeah. to come after us for literally claiming to be education instead of entertainment. Yeah. And you know, we're not we've... trying to entertain, <laughs> right? And so we're trying to sort of stay under the radar, and we've been fairly su successful in doing that. I only have 500 subs on YouTube, so I don't really think that they care too much of what I'm saying. But, well, we're trying to. I'm trying to poke the bear a little bit enough to to get yeah. people's attention onto these topics because it's, yeah. you know, it's I, not it's not as attractive as Dogman and Nephilim, <laughs> you know, wandering the streets of Florida and stuff like that, and the alien disclosure bullshit right. that's going on. These are all very provocative things that are happening around us, and they're getting more forcefully in our faces as the more finer details of the world that you're uncovering takes place yeah. right in front of our very eyes. Yeah. So to finish on Lazarsfeld and Merton, they famously wrote mass communication, popular taste and organized social action in 1948 and are the very coiners of the term narcotizing dysfunction. So when we look at mainstream media and we see that there's just so much conflicting information that nobody really knows the truth or up from down, they are narcotized into dysfunction. And that was a term through their study of radio behavior and sociology, their sociological approach to the study of society. These are the, the determinations that they'd found that they were passing along to Rockefeller because he's paying for all of this, this uh, research. So for obvious reasons, the society changed its name to the American Sociological Association. And today remains very relevant, publishing over a dozen sociology journals and magazines. Jesus. So they're they're prominent, just like J.P. Morgan, right? He's like the leading bank. He's involved in all of this. So it's ASA, A-S-A, ASA. Yeah. So the mass. I'm a media, word guy. I'm a language guy. So I, you know, I see abbreviations and and acronyms, and I'm like, uh, what are they trying to say? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so uh, so the mass media. <laughs> sorry. No, I was just apologizing for interrupting with okay. nonsense. <laughs> so the mass media prove most effective when they operate in a situation of, and so this is taken from mass communication, popular taste and social action. This is Lazarsfeld Merton. The mass media prove most effective when they operate in a situation of virtual psychological monopoly, or when the objective is one of canalizing rather than modifying basic attitudes, or when they operate in conjunction with face-to-face -face contacts. But these three conditions are rarely satisfied conjointly in propaganda for social objectives. To the degree that mono monopolization of attention is rare, opposing propagandas have free play in a democracy. So there in 1948, talking about how important your attention is. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. And um, also mentioning the word canalizing, and I left the definition at the bottom, to convey something through a channel or a duct. A narrow strait can so canalize the tide that a powerful current is developed. television the ultimate and persuasive social machinery and that it combines written word spoken word music and motion picture all into the most dangerously potent form of propaganda on the planet uh so they're they're stating there that to canalize is to create uh, a powerful current in the tide and so you think about you know social public opinion being a tide and and so this is why they're using it because it creates a current Mm. in in society of public opinion and so finally for the most obvious of reasons the close collaboration of mass media and locally organized centers for face-to-face contact has seldom been achieved in groups striving for planned social change because they're expensive today we see that that's what they do because they have the money. In view of the present organization of business ownership and control of the mass media, they have served to cement the structure of our society. Organized business does approach a virtual psychological monopoly of the mass media. Face-to-face contacts with those who have been socialized in our culture serve primarily to reinforce the prevailing culture patterns. This is going back to changing images of men in the 60s and 70s. They talk about this. So, that's all derived from these guys' work. Thus, the very conditions which make for the maximum effectiveness of the mass media of communication operate toward the maintenance uh, of the going social and cultural stru- structure. So they're the ones that create the, the one and two-step flow of communication models. I think I mentioned that here somewhere. Yeah, I believe you did. And so the one-step flow of communication is... When we sit in front of the television and a news anchor directly speaks and tells us the news. Right. And that's called the hypodermic needle. (laughs) (laughs) The hypodermic needle model, just direct infusion of information from the media into the people. Now, the Mm two-step flow of communication incorporates uh, social leaders, thought leaders like Oprah, like Zuckerberg, like uh, George Clooney, just actors. Joe Rogan. Yeah, right? So that's the two-step flow of communication. That's what they're saying, that that the, the direct information from the news anchor plus all of your social thought leaders echoing that message plus local face-to-face contacts. Now, we saw that with COVID, that even the people that we know, and this is really a, a, an important aspect of the Agenda 21, is that they went after the, the local people as the the reinforcers and the managers to to instill agenda 21 it wasn't the federal government that did it and so when you get face-to-face interaction like we did with covid and everybody's wearing the masks and all of our elected officials like they were here locally you know stating all of the same things in lockstep it becomes uh what do they say here it reaches maximum effectiveness of the mass media so these are the guys that really created the idea and, and brought it forth. So by introducing the West to sociology, Ross, Small, Howard, all following a similar pattern observed in the parallel creations of psychology, psychiatry, and philosophy departments helping establish the Association of American Universities. People become cogs in the wheel of something bigger turning. The founders of the sociology establishing the two main pillars of propaganda by being the first to establish brick and mortar research departments 
with their own faculty and authoring the foundational literature necessary for the propagation of a burgeoning soft science. The chart below, a chart designed to show the distribution of functions at various stages of social organization speaks like the blueprint for the seven functions of society so important to the changing images of man study in the 60s and 70s. We talked about how, you know, Huxley is cited in there. Both Huxley uh, brothers are cited in there. Joseph Campbell in The Hero's Journey. He's uh, one of the co-creators, co-authors of this thing established through the Stanford Research Institute. And they talk about uh, influencing people through the seven functions of society and how our motivations lead to our actions and our actions lead to the health of society, whichever that is for good or bad. But the health of the state they were um, proposing is a direct is directly influenced by the population in general. So the development of the individual within society being driven by his basic values to act according to the stimulus applied by way of feedback loop some 40 years before Norbert Wiener's famous discovery and on the onset of the cybernetic age. We've talked a little bit about cybernetics and this is sort of the, the founders of all of this human study, is it not? Mm -hmm. When we're looking mm -hmm. at sociology in the 1800s, this is really where cybernetics finds its base. Yep. So subtly and slowly steering our interests away from the natural agrarian farm life to that of a stainless steel metropolitan lifestyle. And so to close this, I just wanted to put this, this diagram. This is at the end of uh, one of their collaborative works. And so on the left, we have the family, the family unit. And on the far right, we have the welfare state, the administrative state, the super complicated society that's, that is created as a necessary sort of security for the family. And you can see the, all of the many complications that lead into our lives. And, and so it leads into a super complicated life. And this was really the premise behind the scientific expert was that the world is now so complicated and hard to understand that it's now beyond the layman. And for democracy to work, we're going to need a scientific expert that leads these uh, intelligence bureaus that Walter Lippmann talked about to mm -hmm. steer and guide society in the direction that they want. So they create this level of vulnerability that we talk about in this gray area is where they exploit and take advantage of the human being our trust. And so one of the more common uh, terms that we see today is blissful ignorance. And this is largely the defense of the television watchers. They would rather stay blissfully ignorant than to learn anything. And so as you look through there, you see the, the family functions, you've got protection, economic activities, propagation as the primary goal of the family to have babies, to, um, add to the population as people are leaving it and dying. This is the main function. This of is, family, this is as nuts. We know it. This chart is insane. It is, man. It is. And so socialization breaks down into three social intercourse, education, and ethical culture and discipline. So ethical, again, we see the appearance of, and then that breaks down into further aspects and further aspects and further aspects. And this becomes their argument for the expert. 
is that all of these things on the right is really a representation of the welfare state and what our government looks like today. You know, when you look at the administrative state, these are the things really that it looks after. We're largely living in a socialist, not a democratic society. Aesthetic, uh, even closer religion, to morals, like they're just, man, it's, dude, this yeah. is, this chart is blowing yeah. my mind. Yeah. Yeah, and you've got so time going from left to right, the distribution of functions at various stages of social organization and how they did that. I just feel like my whole life got put in a box. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and I felt that way mind. already. But oh my God, this chart just like made my, yeah. my eyes tear up a little bit. So the horizontal lines. I will try to have Dwayne send me like, I don't know, like a copy of the, just an image of this sure. chart. Yeah. My it's God. in one of the books. I pulled this out of one of the books I've mentioned here. I, I, yeah. can't read I think it's the study of society, uh, but I will get you the title. No one's talking about. Oh, and the, now <laughs> the text and the information, even in the book itself, these, these diagrams and pictures are at the end of the book, but man, when you go into <sighs> it, it just lays out their whole plan because these books weren't meant for the public. This is kind of books being disseminated amongst themselves. So the horizontal lines represent social activities of various kinds. The vertical columns broadly indicate certain types of social structure from the primary group, the family, up to a highly complex organism, the city. So the chart is designed simply to illustrate graphically the increasingly complex structure and diversified functions of society as it advances, not from savagery to civilization, but from primary to higher forms of integration. No claim to mm. accuracy of generalization is made for this diagram. In the nature of the case, the conditions here indicated are universal only in the widest sense. The Such branching of the horizontal language. lines. Sorry? Such such like justified fancy language. Yeah. yeah, this is really what I want to introduce to people too, is their language, how they speak. Yeah. And, and how it's normalized. And, and just as they had to have a disinterested public, they had to have a disinterested clinician, social engineer, social scientist, because they're infusing immoral uh, situations into society for a future good. Mm -hmm. And so they have to be disinterested and not so uh, focused on, you know, the consequences so what this you, is, you know, you it makes sense. There. Go ahead. Sorry, Dwayne. It makes sense that this comes from the Century Club because what is the Bohemian Club but the sacrifice of care? So this is yeah. really where we're getting to the nuts and bolts of it all. Exactly. So the branching of the horizontal line signifies not necessarily the growth of one from the other, but the passing over in part or wholly of a function from one social organ to another. The effort is to give a general impression, and it is from this standpoint rather than that of minute examination that the experiment should be judged. They're using the word experiment. A comparison of the first vertical column on the left with the last on the right will best serve to show the progress from simplicity mm. to complexity. Unreal. Well, that's an incredible chart. It's one of my more fav uh, favorite items or artifacts that we found in this 10 part series because it really lays it out and you could spend an hour here and really learn a lot about sort of their game plan yeah and it does feel like an alien invasion studying us yeah it's totally this is what it is they they 
So for those uninitiated, social sciences are the study of society and then applied science is taking that information and applying it to us. Right. So the final quote here is taken from the study of society and introduction, Albion Woodbury Smallville. That's the book. So anybody could right now just internet search the study of society and introduction, Albion Woodbury Small, and I'm almost positive that this is the book that will come up with these diagrams and pictures. So the functional many-sidedness of the primary social combination, the family, is of great significance, they said. The family displays in a microcosm all the activities of the village, city, or nation. This is not to be construed into an assertion that the nation is merely a larger structure of the family type or that modern government corresponds to parental authority. Of course, don't, don't you know, right. read that into this. In conditions generally recognized as normal, propagation is exclusively a function of the family, which therefore serves as a connecting link between physical life and that of the social organism. It is the pe peculiar service of the family to produce the new individuals who take the places of those that perish in order that a society may attain a high degree of organization and stability. It is necessary that its individual members should be brought into orderly relations with the land. The functions exclusively or largely performed by the family are a propagation, location of settlement, defense, production, apportionment and transmission, communication, intellectual training, socialization. All these activities combine in the one general function of preserving the physical and psychical continuity of society. So this is really psychical. the established psychical. Yeah. So it's yeah. the establishment <laughs> of our social contract. There's really no argument to be made here. When you look at it in a mature, honest, intellectual uh, approach, this is the founding of our social contract at just one aspect, maybe the largest one because it's law, mm -hmm. but just like everything else, this is, uh, an aspect of our social contract. And so here is some of our sources we've provided. We have probably another 10 sources through the body of the work that I just, I name, I don't put a number there. So we've probably got close to 20 sources in this, this article as well. So I invite everybody to go look and come find me on Facebook. We are on uh, YouTube at the history of propaganda and uh, definitely leave a comment. And uh, if you've got any questions, come find me on Facebook. Or if you've got any questions right now and we have time to cover them, I'm I'm okay with that. It's up to you, though, Andy. Yeah, I mean, right? it's in the Eastern time zone, and I appreciate your time. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, and I appreciate all your hard work as always. <clears throat> this is um, this series is just it's getting crazier and crazier yeah. as we get further into it. I agree, and this is amazing, and, and I appreciate everybody sticking with us to the end here and, and checking out this series. Cool. Uh, yeah, if I anybody... do. I really appreciate those people that have decided to put their attention here because this is a critical aspect. It's our, it's where we pay attention. So, you know, I, I strongly encourage people to be uh, managing and watching where their attention is being paid. And, you know, a good indicator of <clears throat> whether you're paying attention in the right places or not is how many times a day you are emotionally triggered into, you know, being super happy or super angry. And I think that, you know, you can tell a lot about people from how they are. You can see, you know, how much television they watch just by, you know, what they say and how they act. And, you know, I've said hashtag turn off your TV for a long time. And so, 
uh, we are in a critical point in history. You know, we are availed some amazing information and an amazing opportunity. And now is the time in human history where we can flip this from top down to bottom up and make a world that we want and, you know, fulfill in many ways the roles that have been missing our entire life. You know, bulletproofpub.com, we try to fill in that role of the media you know, is it true? And is it in the public interest? Are the two things that motivate us? Like Robert Sepier says, we are trying to be as intellectually honest in a world of total dishonesty. And we are trying to be a life preserver for those that are being thrown around in this current that they talk about, right? So bulletproofpub.com, we just updated everything. We've got our latest uh, podcast from last week up there now and this article and a lot more you know we've touched on the future perfect the exilitarator the political salons in california and los angeles and the infiltration of hollywood through film noir we've got multiple um, articles on all of that that are formulated the exact same way as this with uh, source material and citations all along the way because i don't like you know not knowing or one of the major things for me is I don't want to say things that are untrue, or at least if I say something, I have a legitimate avenue and a path of research that I can show you why I have derived those conclusions. So, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And then the invitation to further the conversation, you know, that's the yeah. whole point, you know? Yep. Um, and yeah, we welcome as many questions. Dwayne, you should definitely be going to my YouTube page as well and checking out the comment section. Oh, Cause you're yep. definitely get you're definitely getting sure. plenty of praise, you know, cool. people calling you the goat already, man. The goat, Really right on. <laughs> Dude, it's, you're uncovering some of this stuff that no one's ever heard of. I mean, yeah. And, you know, for me, this has linked so many different lines of thinking together. And, mm -hmm. you know, I think when, when you and I first started talking about these different lines of thinking and I would, I would kind of infuse the really, really ancient stuff into it, it didn't seem to have a lot of connectors. And now as we've come along mm -hmm. for over a year now, it's, there's more and more little pieces that seem to be threaded throughout so it's really yeah. cool watching this uh, process develop and yeah, seeing cool. everything i'm glad unfold. you're getting something out of it man I'm, I'm glad that this information is getting across in the way that i wanted to the biggest fear i have is to be able to say all this and at the end people go i still don't get it man yeah that's <laughs> right? yeah, so i'm exactly. trying to do my best and you know for those watching still um keep in mind Dwayne's going to be with us in a couple days for another episode not of this series but of a, yep. a totally different thing and it's going to have to do with a similar theme for sure where like more deception absolutely and it's it's yes. um it's tied into a lot I think we're going to be talking about some of the same like uh ideas and concepts mm -hmm. um and do i Dwayne, i definitely uh encourage you to infuse that next chat that we're gonna have with as much uh references to this series that we've sure. been doing as you feel yeah. like doing because i'm yeah. sure we're gonna see a bunch you know but um but anyway um we love you guys for sticking around with us and uh appreciate you Cheers everybody for being here yeah. still way this to go part six and we're gonna be doing four more parts of this so mm -hmm. the rise of the expert part seven continues next week yes. and it's kind of like a part two of of this you yep. know law 
uh, part of the uh, the situation. So. Yeah, we bring in Bentham, Hume, Comte, uh, the ethical socialists, the utopian socialists of you know the French Revolution. The, there's a mm-hmm. ominous continuity of thought that that goes all the way through to the Fabians of the early 20th century. So, uh, yeah, this is uh, this is the part that I was really looking forward to because I, I found that it really established a lot of things for me and made me look at the world you know in a more clear way so i'm glad that we're through this one i felt like we did a pretty good job explaining it and hopefully next week we um bring a lot of thoughts together because i agree with you that this does bring a lot of things together right we want to talk about ai and and everything that's going on today and and singularity and we talk about ray kurzweil well that has its origins in the efficiency movement Exactly. And, uh, you know, if we want to talk about all kinds of aspects of uh, bringing all of the conspiratorial theorism together, this is really a major uh, common ground that we can find, you know, and in many ways we can actually diffuse a lot of the anger out there too, because we're showing that as an example, you know, a Christian versus an atheist, we can really diffuse that in a lot of ways by showing and introducing the Schofield Bible, because right. it's the atheist that really has a problem with all of this fear of the future. This is why they've put down the Bible or aren't interested in it. And the Christian is that that is pushing this fear of the future, this dispensational second coming of Christ is, you know, unwittingly working against their own self-interest. So if we can remove that Scofield Bible and show that, hey, they were just tricking you, we can actually diffuse the situation and find common ground even between an atheist and a Christian, devout or orthodox Christian. Yeah, so if we have, possible. if this information has that kind of power, then, you know, this, I mean, I've said it already that this information, this isn't hyperbole, that this information can really save the world. And that's what I believe. So... Well, I agree, and I'm glad that you're sharing it here with us, man. I appreciate the time. I appreciate the opportunity, man. And we appreciate you. So, everybody, thank you so much for being here with us, and we'll see you next week. Human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together, that's Enough! (laughs) I get the point. You meddle with the primal forces of nature! And you will atone. What do we know? What do we know? If I know what we know, then I can tell you what we know, and if someone else knows, okay? Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.